Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for Hope I used to find In a case of lion's hands Folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Alright, Brendan, so we're here Saturday evening, March 6th, uh, took a little bit of a, a mini uns, unscheduled hiatus, some school and work things getting in the way of our recording, but we're back. And uh, what do we got? What do we got going on this week? Yeah, it's, it's good to be back. I, I missed you, buddy. You know, we, we've been we've been really good in 2021. We, we had one every single week, but we, we got an exciting episode tonight and an exciting week ahead for the podcast. So um, hopefully we can make up for any lost time. Uh, this week, we have our second guest on, um, Vincent Cordalesa, and he's going to be on to talk about the reaction to CPAC and, and Trump's first major foray back into the public sphere uh, since his defeat. And where the Republican Party goes from here and what role President Trump's going to play in that party. Um, so we'll get to that uh, at the end of the episode. But uh, before we get into that, you and I are going to spend some time delving into HR1, which stands for House Resolution 1, which just passed uh, the House this week. Uh, it's a, essentially a Voting Rights Act. Uh, and we're going to take a deep dive into, into what that all means. But before we begin, I have to remind everyone out there that this podcast is brought to you by the guys over at Cannon Hill Woodworking, building high handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two N's. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at cannonhillwood.com. The guys at Cannon Hill want to remind you Restoration hardware is just Ikea for rich people. Don't be a sucker. Buy a table, buy a table locally crafted from real wood. That's good. Are you very clever guys? Uh, And excellent craftsmen. Ricky, my goal, 2021, we need one listener out there to buy a table from them. Yeah. I might buy a table from them. There we go. That would, that, that works too. Then we can really <laughs> speak to it. All right. Uh, let's get into HR one. So as I mentioned, HR one stands for house resolution one. It was given that one designation by uh, speaker Pelosi, a lar- largely symbolic um, designation. And it's also colloquially known as the for the people bill. And as I mentioned, it's a voting rights bill. It's 800 pages, so I can't say that I have read it at all or can speak to it in depth, but I want to highlight a few of the provisions in there that I feel are worth talking about. Uh, The bill's provisions would guarantee no excuse mail-in voting. It would guarantee at least 15 days of early voting for federal elections. Require states to use their government records to automatically register citizens to vote. It would restore voting rights to felons who have completed their prison sentences. Uh, Other things in the bill, it would create new disclosure requirements for dark money donations to political groups. It would require states to appoint independent commissions to draw congressional districts. It would create new federal standards for uh, election equipment vendors. It would require tech platforms to disclose political advertising information. 
establish a code of ethics for the Supreme Court justices for the first time. I uh, would restructure the uh, Federal Election Commission, the FEC, to have an odd number of members. So to break like partisan deadlocks, right now there are six members. The, the bill would get that down to five. It would require presidential candidates to disclose their past 10 years of tax reforms. It would provide uh, federal funding, a six to one federal match for small dollar donations raised by congressional candidates. Uh, so it, it does, it's a massive bill designed to do a lot of things. It passed the House last week or just a few days ago with a 220 to 210 split. Every Democrat except for one voted for it. Every Republican voted against it. It doesn't appear likely to pass the Senate because you need 60 votes and it, it feels nearly impossible to see 10 Republicans voting for it. With that said, uh, Amy Klobuchar said that the Senate's going to try to come up with their own bill along these same lines with some of these same goals. So it's not necessarily dead on arrival in the Senate, although the bill as passed from the House is definitely not going to pass. It might as well be dead on arrival. But a lot of these goals inherent in H.R. 1 could potentially be passed. I, I think it's a high priority for the Democratic leadership and for a lot of Democratic activists in the country. So uh, what were your thoughts on, on the bill in the measures contained in it. It's a uh, um, uh, similar to you. I have not read the, the text as, as I assume most, most people haven't or, or will not. I would um, be shocked if most of the, the house. Right. Read. No one who's reading 800 pages of text, I, which is kind of a problem in and of itself. I mean, like, honestly, if they should do anything, it's to put a, a page limit and a word count on these things so like, let's do things. If, if you, if no one's going to read it, then let's not do it all at one time. Let's do different things. But um, I guess what I would, what I would say just on the, uh, the, the gist is not the right word, but the intent of the bill um, to really go after a lot of the different ways um, that disenfranchisement has been impacting certain communities over say call it the last you know 40 50 years probably since the voting rights act was put into place um gerrymandering being one so the the provision that you had mentioned about drawing districts based on like something logical instead of uh what we do now which is a very partisan process um uh, automatic enrollment and and things like things of things that have generally been barriers to certain demographics, namely Black, Latino, uh, poor voters to voting, um, I think on balance, people in general should think that it's a good thing. Um, I, yeah, it's, it's one of those things, again, where like, if you put an 800 page bill together that you know is not going to get passed, I don't entirely know why you're doing that. And that there are some very specific things in here that should be very hard, very difficult for individual people to say no to that you would, you would think might be able to at least get popular support that might actually put some pressure on some senators to vote for it. Who knows if that, that that's actually a thing that could happen. Um, I guess if I was to say one thing that I like about it, it's that Democrats are not sitting back after this election victory, much like they did after Obama too, and saying like, we're just going to win every election from here on out because the demographics say that we will. 
um, and are trying to put some protections in place um, to ensure that that their tent, which which grows primarily with um, Latino voters and voters from and well, actually, that may not be true, but um, but that does that has been reliably strong in these areas that are more prone to being disenfranchised, that ensuring that their votes are protected through federal legislation, I understand that and I, and I generally support it. Yeah, the reason you pass an 800 page bill with all of these provisions in it that you know is not going to actually make into law is just to like virtue signal to your base that like, hey, look at what we're doing. Uh, but let's, you said something that, hey, I think there are provisions in there that would largely have universal appeal. But let, let me give you some of the Republican reactions to it. So I mentioned that no Republican in the House voted for it this time around. A similar bill was passed back in 2019. No Republicans voted for it then. Uh, so Rep. Andy Barr uh, from Kentucky, he said, the bill is the most divisive, unconstitutional, and destructive piece of legislation of my time in Congress. It would effectively make it illegal to do it. would effectively make it legal to cheat. I, former Vice President Pence wrote an article about the bill this past week, and he said that the last election was marked by significant voter irregularities. It's time for our nation's leaders to help uh, America heal, uh, and that that this bill is actually going to do the opposite to it. Uh, President Trump in his CPAC speech, which we'll dive into more a little bit later, said that it's a monster, that it must be stopped. Uh, it's the apocalyptic rhetoric from Republicans has been not, not shocking it anyway, but uh, it's, it's they're using the strongest possible language to condemn this bill. And I, I will say that I'm, I've been getting emails from the mass GOP railing against this, this bill. Uh, and the reasons for that are obvious and disheartening to me is that while I, while I want to get into some of the provisions that I, I might disagree with in a little bit, the goal, the intent of this bill is to make voting easier for people. And as you and I have talked about repeatedly on this podcast, I think we both agree that we want to make voting access as as easy as possible for the largest number of people. And that's the goal of this bill. And for Republicans to come out and not only vote against it, but then to come out and, you know, describe the bill in some of the terms that I just mentioned, it seems to me to be one, a cry of fear that as demographics change that we can't win, which I hate. And then two, it's hard to read it as anything other than we want to suppress black and brown votes. Like we, you know, unfortunately as a country, both parties uh, have done for hundreds of years. Uh, and that's really disappointing to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you'll, you'll hear it framed as like a state's rights type of issue, but the reason that the states essentially forfeited those rights in the voting rights act was because they were not, you know, uh, equally protecting the rights of all of their citizens to vote. In fact, they were selectively figuring out ways to, to disenfranchise, dis, disenfranchise certain groups of people, right? So, so it, it is one of those, those things. And, and, it, and it's just, it goes back to the old, like, you know, where does the Republican Party go from here in the, insofar as are they deciding that if more people vote, we lose that election every single time so that rather than try and change what they're voting on, we're just going to prevent them from voting. 
That's, there's no other way to read the overwhelming opposition to this. And again, there are provisions in this bill that I don't like and that I do think actually infringe on states' rights and give too much power to the federal bureaucracy, which I don't like. But two, let's let's take a step back and just look, why does the federal government have to get involved at all? Good question, me. I, right now, there are 43 states that have pending legislation dealing with voting rights. It's maybe the one of, if not the largest issue across the country right now coming out of the 2020 election. Uh, and in those states, 28 states have introduced 106 bills whose goals essentially are to restrict access to the, the ballot box. Uh, on the other hand, there are 35 states that have introduced bills to, uh, have, 35 states have introduced 406 bills whose goals are essentially to expand voter access. So. The reason the federal government feels like they need to get involved is because a lot of state legislatures are already making their own moves. And I wanna highlight a couple of states in particular. First of all, Arizona, which uh, has become more democratic. I would say it's, it's probably a, a purplish state at this point, but it used to be a reliably red Republican state uh, due to an influx of immigration, largely minority immigration, Hispanic immigration, uh, the party is, the, the state is, is changing a little bit. So there, they passed a series of goals whose, a series of bills whose goal was essentially to restrict access to, to the, the, the ballot box. And it, the Supreme Court just heard the case this past week. And Amy Coney Barrett at one point asked, it's, it's basically the Republican uh, party of Arizona is, is filing suit. Uh, to say to to defend the, the the voting laws, and Amy Coney Barrett asked the question like, "What stake does the Republican Party have in in this? Like, why why is the Republican Party here defending these laws?" And the lawyer came out and said, "Because it puts us at a competitive disadvantage relative to Democrats." And while I applaud his honesty, <laughs> what a what a ridiculous answer! So like, what are our, as a party, again, I'm developing myself in with the Republican Party, our answer to changing demographics in our in Arizona is to pass laws designed to get fewer of these people, give them the right to vote. Like that it just it seems so, I don't know, reductive to me. And then another state, and this probably isn't going to shock anybody out there, is, is that Georgia is passing, they just got legislation through their, um, their house that will also roll back uh, voting access. It's going to require photo ID. It will limit absentee voting. It would limit the amount of time voters have to request an absentee ballot, restrict where ballot drop boxes could be located, when they could be accessed, limit early voting on weekends, among a bunch of other things. And again, while there might be some legitimate provisions in there and that like election integrity is an important thing, I agree. There's no other way, again, to read what's happening in the Georgia State House, which is dominated or at least uh, led by Republicans, then to see it as a backlash, as a reaction to their state just electing two Democratic senators and voting for President Biden. So I'll step back here, but that's, it's incredibly frustrating for me as a conservative to see like our answer to losing elections is going to be to restrict the people that get to vote in them. Yeah, I mean, and Arizona in particular, you know, brought forth a lot of these things following this election, many of these practices had actually been in place. It's not just like early or, you know, early voting or mail-in voting. Many of these practices had been in place 
for years prior to this particular election. It just so happened that when they saw the results of this election, they were like, mm, maybe, maybe, maybe this doesn't work for us anymore. And, and, you know, the point of a lot of these reliably red states, certainly changing demographics, but you also have like Arizona is getting an influx of people who are just fleeing kind of the higher cost of living in California. You also have similar things that are going on in Georgia, North Carolina, Virginia, where people from the Northeast are moving southward for, for lower cost of living. And they're bringing with them a lot of, you know, their, whatever their traditional, more progressive, you know, I don't want to say progressive, Democrat leaning uh, voting tendencies. I think you're going to see that, you know, happen more often just because like in, you know, in a state like Wyoming or something where you have very few people to begin with, it's not going to take that many new people moving in to really change around sort of the traditional politics of, of a place like that. Yeah. All right. So uh, let me now play like the other side of, of the coin here and, and say that I do really believe in like the state's rights argument that states should have control over their own elections. It's, it's in the constitution. And while Congress may have the power to pass these laws to amend that. I'm not totally in favor of people in Washington deciding how people in North Dakota or Massachusetts or wherever conduct their own elections. Uh, I also do believe in election integrity. I'm not against having like voter ID laws. I do think that like universal mail-in voting as it's currently constituted has some drawbacks and is more prone to fraud. And while there may not have been extensive fraud in this past election, that worry does exist for me, and certainly on a far greater level, that belief in fraud exists for millions of people out there. So continuing to expand these policies is not necessarily going to lead to more faith in our elections and potentially could lead to more violence down the line, which is obviously everyone wants to avoid. So I guess my first reaction is disappointment in, in the Republican Party for opposing the bill. Um, with that said, I wouldn't want the bill as is to pass. It's more like there are certain provisions in here to extend voting rights access, particularly to communities that have historically been denied such access that I, it frustrates me that we all can't just get on board with that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting that we've kind of come to this place with the, the Voting Rights Act, which was kind of a, a, a legislative way, or not a legislative, but like a judicial way of dealing with this issue, like allowing states to still maintain control over how, you know, who in their state gets to vote, but essentially saying, you know, you kind of have two things. One, before Shelby versus Holder, you had to essentially, if you wanted to pass a new law, it had to go essentially through the federal government. That got struck down in, in 2013. Then the second piece was essentially, if we can prove, if some, it, it becomes, if Democrats can prove that you know, the laws that you're passing disproportionately or were targeted towards, you know, racial minorities or, or, or whatever to, to disenfranchise specific groups of people, then we can get those laws struck down. And I think one of the, the challenges here is that if the Supreme Court kind of finds on the side of, of the Republican Party within Arizona, that that, that provision of like, we can challenge voting restrictions that are disproportionately Im impacting people all of a sudden loses its teeth. And if we don't have a reciprocal piece of legislation come out of the house, then, then where are we? Then we don't really have any of the protections that we used to have under the Voting Rights Act of 1965. 
Yeah, that's that's totally fair. I think the biggest argument against let states do what they want is when we allow states to do what they want, they have proven that they're just going to discriminate against people that are in the minority. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I, I think fundamentally, and I've said this a million times, is that I don't believe that the conservative movement is necessarily disadvantaged by changing demographics. I, I think President Trump, of all people, proved that by expanding the 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 base in a lot of ways and bringing in not only working class white voters, but a lot of working class black voters and Hispanic voters that maybe tend to be more socially conservative. I, I just disagree with the, the fundamental uh, premise that because we are becoming a minority majority nation within the next 30 or 40 years, that that means the, the Republican Party has to end. I believe that we can speak to these people and grow the conservative movement amongst these people. And it's just a bad look to try to restrict access to the ballot box. We Again, how many times do we have to say this? The tent should be as big as possible and we, it should be a marketplace of ideas. Right. Well, the problem, though, is that if your court like and I guess it, it is it's one of those things to try and figure out, like, what proportion of the Republican tent is kind of the the racist base that you look at, right? Because it is very difficult to, to maintain that segment while also growing within the Latino population or growing, you know, your, your black voter base, right? Like you, those two things are really diametrically opposed and that's going to be, that's going to be a challenge. And right now it looks like they're like, we're going to double down on our, on the people we know are still voting for us today. And if that just means that rather than allow those other people that we can't get into our tent to vote, you know, to vote against us or, you know, we're going to just try and get them not to be able to vote at all. And that's how we're going to win going forward. No, it's become it's become like the party of grievances and particularly like white grievances. Uh, and that is it's infuriating and really disappointing to me. And, and that's one of the many battles that the GOP is going to have to fight uh, amongst itself over these next few years. Yeah. Just fine in yourself. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, well, well, we'll talk more about this one when we bring Vince on, but it'll be interesting, of course, to see what happens in the Senate with this. And I don't know, I, I think in my ideal world, we would have a drastically pared down bill that doesn't significantly extend federal overreach, but does provide protections um, for people, minority groups and states to ensure that the Voting Rights Act of 50 years ago is not just left uh, to the pages of history and continues to be enforced with teeth by our federal government. Yeah, that is, uh, you're asking a lot, but <laughs> there's, there's always some hope. Eternally, eternally optimistic, Rick. That you are, that you are. All right, uh, when we come back, we will head into our interview and we will welcome Vince onto the show. All right, so we now welcome to the program Vincent Cordalesa, our second ever guest on A Gentleman's Disagreement podcast. So uh, Vince is a graduate of Florida Atlantic University, uh, currently pursuing his JD at Suffolk University here in Boston. And maybe most importantly, a uh, Navy veteran, was in, been in the Navy for almost seven years now, I think, uh, was active duty for four years, now in the reserves. Uh, so Vince, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Thank, 
Thank you guys for having me. I uh, really appreciate it. I've been watching your show for a few weeks now, and you guys do a great job. So thanks again. Oh, we appreciate it. This is look. This is already uh, off to a good start. This is why we brought him on here, just to pump our tires. This is great. Uh, but actually, along those lines, one of the reasons that we did want to have Vince on is that when I put out the pod, when we put out the podcast, Vince had reached out to me and said, "You know, I know you are center right. I am more. I am to your right." And so if you ever want someone on to kind of push the conversation in that direction and maybe give a more, I don't know, traditional Republican or um, conservative uh, viewpoint on some things, I would love to participate. And so uh, that's why Vince is on today. We're going to talk, uh, hit on a number of topics, including um, what happened at CPAC last week, the future of the Republican Party, um, former President Trump's role in the future of the Republican Party, um, HR1, which uh, just passed the, the House a few days ago. So a bunch of different things um, for, for, you know, to get Vince's view on today. Uh, and I guess I'd like to start, Vince, you're like super politically aware. And while like Ricky and I have talked that political awareness has become way more mainstream in the past four or five years, and I think it was previously, uh, you're someone that even uh, in an elevated consciousness, I feel like it's really tuned into politics and has um, like really strong political opinions. So I'm kind of curious, just, I gave like a very brief and general overview of, of where you stand politically on the spectrum as it exists, um, but kind of curious to hear more about like your own, where do you situate yourself um, politically and where did your political consciousness and political beliefs all kind of come into to, to give you or put you where you are today? Sure. Um, so I'm originally from Rhode Island. I, that's actually where I live right now with my folks. And um, the, the fact that I'm a Republican is um, obviously because of my dad. He was a Reagan Republican. Um, so, you know, kind of inherited that from him. And, you know, just classical, traditional home values. And I've taken that from him and my family. Uh, he was actually um, a candidate for the Secretary of State a few years ago in our state. <laughs> and he also... Um, he ran for the Senate in our state uh, last last term. Oh, so, no way. Un yeah, unfortunately, he did not win because he's a Republican in Rhode Island. So, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's I mean, pretty much where I get it from. Yeah. Okay. Um, that that's really interesting. You you come by it naturally and honestly, I suppose. <laughs> exactly, and of course, you know, uh, me serving in the military, um, traditionally more conservative outlook on things, but. Um, you know, I get along with people from all different spectrums politically, as you know, uh, Brendan, and I'm just excited to talk to people at different viewpoints, because I think that's what we need to do today. And we're just not seeing that enough. Well, that's exactly what we're trying we're to do speak here. in our language. Yeah, so this is perfect. All right. So let's get into it a little bit. Uh, one of the kind of running gags we have in the show is Ricky, nearly every episode asks me, like, where does Republican Party go from here? And it has been a in an ongoing and evolving question over the past few months in particular. Uh, and we got one of our first looks at where the Republican Party might go from here, um, a post-Trump presidency at the at CPAC, which took place last week. So just an overview for people who uh, might not be as aware of what CPAC is. Uh, it stands for the Conservative Political Action Conference. Uh, it's an annual political conference attended by really grassroots conservative activists across the United States. Uh, it's hosted by this group called the American Conservative Union. First, uh, the, the conference first was held in 1974 and Ronald Reagan, who Vince mentioned earlier, uh, gave the first keynote speech to it. Uh, President Trump also spoke there back in 2011. 
And a lot of people point to that speech and his appearance at CPAC in 2011 as really kind of kicking his kicking off his rise in the Republican Party. So a, a long history, uh, and it was particularly significant this year, not only that it was the first big gathering, conservative gathering post uh, the Trump presidency, um, but also because President Trump gave the keynote address. And it's his first time that he's emerged from Mar-a-Lago since uh, his, his defeat and his first big uh, address to Republicans, to conservatives, to the nation. And everyone was really curious um, to see what he would have to say. So I'll give some of my takeaways from it and then Vince curious um, what you thought, particularly of, of President Trump's speech, but CPAC in general. So uh, a, a few things that stood out to me is that President Trump continued to push the narrative that he won the election and that the election was uh, unfairly taken from him and, and stolen. It's, I know this was like a big, he was getting a lot of pressure from some, some corners to put that aside and focus on some other things. President Trump, that's not his nature to let, like, let sleeping dogs lie. So he continued to push uh, that narrative. And along with that, and we'll get into this more later, you know, attacked, uh, really pushed for election integrity and attacked HR1. And again, we'll talk more about that later. Uh, also, you know, Trump being Trump is very, vengeful, I suppose, is, is maybe the right word. It, and he's quite angry about the, uh, the Republicans that chose to vote to impeach him. And it looks like he is going to support challengers to those people. Uh, there was some rumor before uh, President Trump's appearance that he might be interested in, in splintering off and creating a third party, potentially like called the Patriot Party. Trump put that all to bed and said, no, that we're all one big Republican family, except for all those people that voted to impeach me, who we should get them all out. Uh, but it's, it's, it was Trump really reasserting himself as, as the head of the party, in my opinion. And he teased a potential run for president back in, 20, in 2024, saying, you know, I've, I've already won twice. Maybe we can go win a third time in, in 2024. Uh, and whether he runs or not, that'll be the speculation for the next two years. And his, he will be dominating the news cycle and consistently his name will be bantered about very much how he likes it. Uh, so to me, the, the speech didn't tell me a whole lot like policy-wise, not that that's surprising, but more just cemented that uh, Trump is going to continue to be the head of the Republican Party for the foreseeable future. Um, what do you have thoughts, Vince? Uh, different takeaways or anything else to add there? No, I think that's a really good take. Um, I think overall, he's going to cement his position as the leader of the party, but it's going to, it's fractured right now uh, because you have the, um, you know, neoconservative wing of the Republican party, the Mitt Romneys, uh, the Mitch McConnells that want to keep the power in their hands. And it's just not there anymore with the voter base. Uh, Trump changed the Republican voter base for all time uh, because he turned it into a working class party um, which traditionally was not the case, as you guys both know. Um, he took a lot of Democratic voters that voted for Obama in 08 and 12, a lot of union workers um, because of his populist appeal. Um, so I think the speech kind of you know, touched on that, how he's going to be supporting candidates that are along his uh, message for economic nationalism, populism. And um, I think that's where the party's going. Um, and that's not to say that there's not Democrats that also believe in a lot of those same things when it comes to that populist appeal. Look at a lot of Bernie Sanders voters. Um, I think that they would actually agree with Trump's economic policies more than Joe Biden's. 
uh, Joe Biden more of like a neo-corporatist, free marketeer type of politician. So you're really seeing more of a splintering of uh, the political establishment when it comes to like the Pelosi's, the Schumer's uh, versus the AOC's and the progressive wing of that party. And then the McConnell's and um, the Republican establishment versus the Trump wing of the Republican party. And um, if you saw the speech, he teased it up for guys like DeSantis from Florida to kind of take over the helm. Um, I, I, I anticipate in 2022, you're gonna see more guys starting to come along those lines and challenge the Liz Cheney's in the house. Uh, she will definitely be primaried and she'll likely lose uh, because you know that's just how big Trump's clout is in the party. Um, I know that I read actually uh, yesterday that Paul Ryan is gonna try to fundraise for her and that's just a disaster. If, if you want Paul Ryan to fundraise for you, you're probably going to lose. Um, I thought so, Paul Ryan was a math guy. Didn't he say that at one point? Yeah. He's a one. He's a one. Yeah. Well, he's at Fox now and he's trying to get them more off the Trump bandwagon. But, you know, that's where the message is on the right. Uh, it's with Tucker Carlson. It's with Laura Ingram. It's with these voices. It's with that populist appeal. So I don't think that's changing. I, I, th I think that's interesting because economic nationalism is certainly, you know, if, if we were to kind of take uh, the view of the Republican Party from people who are still sort of wanting to work within the system, you would look at, you know, Trump's policies as um, nationalist or, you know, potentially protectionist, something like that. But we do know that the party itself has also sort of flirted with these and, and at times just openly courted these kind of racial overtones. I'm curious, you know, where you see that going and is, is that sort of a lasting component of the party over the next three to four years? I hope not. Uh, obviously, whatever happened on January 6th was like terrible and it must be condemned at the highest point. All those people need to be prosecuted and put in jail. Uh, I couldn't say it in more stronger terms. Um, saying that, I don't think that... Um, that's the majority of um, some of these voters. I think we all know that. Uh, that's a fringe outlet, yeah. uh, just like just like Antifa is a fringe outlet of the left. Uh, so we have to be able to distinguish that. And um, I will say the media will per perpetuate that that type of lie that you know this is where the Republican base is at, and try to hurt the party because you know we all know that the media is the opposition party to the Republican Party. It's it's just evident. Um, I think we can all agree on that. If you watch CNN, right, for an hour, and then you watch Fox for an hour, it's like they're two different stories. And you can't have a functioning democracy that way. Remember, CNN used to be like in the middle. Back in the 90s, early 2000s, that was the moderate news station. It's not like that anymore. So you literally have Fox as the only conservative outlet. So what are we going to do? I think that's what it comes down comes comes down to. It's the media and how they perpetuate, you know, some of these right wing fringe outlets and left wing fringe outlets. All right. So I'll I'll push you on that a little bit because I I do think that Antifa may be sort of a corollary to a lot of what we saw um, happen at the Capitol, but it's not the same, right? You don't have Biden openly sort of telling Antifa to stand back and stand by the way. Trump did, right? So there is a little bit of a difference there. And I and I guess I will say that I, I completely agree with you that CNN being like an objective news outlet, that is farcical. 
Um, but there is, I mean, I, I think we've just in, in media in general have gotten away from object, objective journalism, right? The Tucker Carlson's of the world, like we, we promote in our primetime hours only opinion talking head people that are just meant to get people riled up in their couches. So, I, I mean, I, 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 in a weird way, I do, I do agree that there's a huge problem in journalism. I don't know that CNN is, is it. And I also question the fact that people look at mainstream media and don't talk about Fox News like they don't have 40, 50 million viewers a night right? Like that is about as mainstream as you can get from a numbers. I think they have more viewers than CNN does. Yeah, they likely do. Um, you know, it's, it's just interesting because we don't have a straight shooter when it comes to the news organizations anymore. We don't have Walter Cronkite, you know, telling you the news at seven o'clock. Um, so I don't know where we go from here, to be honest with you guys. Uh, it's going to take... It's going to take a political initiative that I just don't see any of our political leaders having the will to do because we're so divided and everyone has their own opinion that we just can't come together when we have, you know, much bigger problems in the world, like what's going on in China and some of these foreign nations that are trying to take advantage of the United States. I think that that's where our, our focus should be. But instead, uh, we're tribalized. And you know who would love to see that? Russia, China, Iran, all of these foreign nations that want to see the United States suffer. So uh, that's a big problem. Yeah, of course. I, I want to go back to what Ricky was touching on before, because a lot of Trump's rise is that goes to his populism, nationalism, nativism, whatever you want to call it. And to me, the, the nationalism falls a little bit along two main fronts, the economic nationalism that you were referencing, and also the, I would say, racial nativism that Ricky was, was referencing. And I, I don't like... Trump was subtle at times, not subtle at other times in terms of using, you know, racist language and, and, and uh, dog whistling or, or being pretty open about uh, disdain for certain populations. Uh, and I think that riled up a certain part of the Republican base, a certain part of the country that maybe wasn't even Republican uh, previously. Uh, but then he has the policy aspect, his economic populism, where uh, the free trade policies that were traditionally Republican had hurt a lot of people. And when he referred to like the forgotten men and women of the United States, like a lot, there were millions of people in this country who did feel forgotten and left behind by trade policies that had been perpetuated by what you might call like the neoconservatives or uh, even, even like whether it was under the Obama administration or Bush administration, a lot of their policies were similar. Right. So, I mean, Trump spoke to a lot of those people and Ricky, I said this to you before, this was, where I was hopeful about the Trump presidency was that he was going to upend just the traditional Washington bureaucracy of everyone kind of falling in line with the same free trade policies, which, I mean, I personally happen to agree with, but clearly it was, there were millions of people that were suffering because of those policies. Um, and so Vince, like what I'm curious about is I was slightly disappointed, again, maybe not super surprised at this point that Trump didn't push the, the economic populism more in his CPAC speech. It seemed like he fell back more on the grievances, whether it was about the election fraud that he alleges happened or he he, bailed, he you know railed against uh, the Equality Act that passed in the House, the transgender rights that's become kind of like the new culture war on the right. Um, he railed against the Supreme Court not having... Uh, not being like conservative and not having the courage that they needed. And I feel like I've seen a lot of that still in the Republican party on, you know, lower levels in the Senate and the house and not enough of the economic populism. Like that's, there never seemed, 
Trump tried with some of his policies, like renegotiating some of his trade deals. Uh, but there seems that seems to be an appetite. And that's, I think, what you were referencing with like the grassroots of the Republican Party. Like, there's an appetite for this economic populism. And I maybe Josh Hawley, I, I'm not like, who, who are the people that are going to take that banner and run from it? Like, th that's what. Again, I don't necessarily agree with those policies, but I don't hate having that debate. And I would love, you know, Republican politicians going forward to embrace the economic populism because clearly, like, there's an app, there's an appetite for that. And as you mentioned, I would love them to decrease or eliminate, if in an ideal world, the the nativism that that unfortunately goes along with um, a lot of. Right. We couldn't agree more. You know, we couldn't agree more in that situation. For the econ economic populism, that's not just a right-wing thing because you know Bernie Sanders is right there. He's right there with these guys. When it comes down to it uh, with the Trump speech, it was kind of like Napoleon coming back from Waterloo. Uh, you've got a guy here that's been you know, pretty much politically destroyed. His followers started this huge riot. Um, I don't think he would be criminally prosecuted um, you know, under the Supreme Court free speech uh, test under Brandenburg, but still he was morally you know, responsible for that. Uh, I kind of agree with Mitch McConnell's statement, which is the first time I ever remember myself agreeing with Mitch McConnell about hardly anything. Um, but I think he was morally responsible for that. And it was a dereliction of duty. Uh, saying that that's why I want, you know, there to be a new figure in this economic populist movement, uh, whether it's a DeSantis, who is doing terrific in Florida, when it comes to COVID, um, keeping, you know, the economy open, but also getting the vaccines rolling. Uh, because, you know, they're able to do two things at the same time. Um, so I like what he's doing down there. Uh, obviously, Ted Cruz, he's got a voice in this. Josh Hawley, as you mentioned. Um, but that's pretty much it in the Senate, right? So you're going to have to see new candidates rise up here and uh, kind of take away from the traditional Republican establishment um, uh, moving forward. Yeah, I just, I just hope, and I think you and I both agree on this, that we can have what I would call a traditional and policy-based debate in the Republican Party of whether we should go with more of the traditional free trade, uh, re like Republicanism, uh, as opposed to economic. Well, well, well I, I'm, I'm for free trade, of course. I'm a Republican, I'm for free trade, but it's gotta be fair, it's gotta be reciprocal, you know? Uh, essentially what we turned, you know, with China, since they were inducted into the World Trade Organization in 2001, they became, you know, the manufacturing sector for not just the United States, but the West in general. Mm -hmm. um, we've shipped millions and millions of manufacturing jobs there and we can't compete with it because they're doing it on slave labor. All right, if you want a corporation like a giant corporation where you need to build products, of course you're gonna do it with, with labor that's only $2 an hour, when in the United States you have to pay workers, if the Democrats have it their way, $15 an hour. So it's just not uh, functional. And these are issues that we need to tackle. And it shouldn't be a right wing, left wing thing. This should be an American issue. And we should be able to do this together. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll, um, I, I, I don't, I don't disagree. I mean, I think, as you noted, sort of the Bernie Sanders side of the equation also feels like Hey, these free trade agreements have not really worked out in in any fashion for the American worker. Um, I also don't disagree that there are, in many respects, that China's not uh, sort of 
acting in in good faith on on these issues. I mean, there are some other problems that we face, right? China does have a very highly skilled labor force um, on mass that we're sort of lacking on in part because of some of it lacking investments in education, right? And then the wage gap, certainly there are, there is a lot of, uh, you know, essentially sweatshop type stuff going on there. But there is, there are also better paying jobs in China than there have ever been. And a, and a lot of, I mean, I think, I think we really have to think about what are the kinds of jobs that we want here in the, in the future and, and really what is our labor force um, best suited for. And I think some of the jobs that we lost, I'm not, I mean, it's very hard to look at somebody who lost that job and say that I don't know that we want that job back, but on mass in terms of where we want this country to go, I think we have to have some of those conversations. Like we lost a lot of jobs to China. We also lost a ton of jobs to automation and other things that we sort of homegrown inventions that have just made it harder for somebody that you have to pay, whether it's $15 an hour, which is like only $30,000 a year or, or a real living wage, which is probably more than that. No, it's a good take. Um, and, and I understand your point of view hundred percent. I do think that automation is costing you know, millions of jobs. Um, Obama said something similar. He said, you can't wave a magic wand and get all these jobs back. I, I think that helped Trump get elected. Um, on top of Hillary Clinton, yeah, on top of Hillary Clinton calling like half of the country deplorables, right? Deplorables, right. right? Um, you know, Hillary Clinton, just speaking of her, I mean, you couldn't have a more neoliberal, neoconservative, free market corporatist, right? Um, and that wing of the Democratic Party is paid off by Wall Street. Um, Joe Biden's campaign completely funded by Wall Street. Um, so it's interesting, these parties that traditionally, you know, right-wing uh, corporatist, left-wing kind of for the union worker, they've changed. They've changed tremendously, tremendously, and I don't think they're going to go back to the way they were. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Ricky's mentioned that several times. It's really fascinating, like historically how the parties change their, their demographics and, and their beliefs and everything so fluid, but it's, it's going to be one of the lasting legacies of the Trump candidacy and the Trump presidency was to really consolidate the, the working class blue collar vote. And speaking of CPAC, we saw a lot of that rhetoric from not only Trump, but from a bunch of speakers at CPAC that that's where they believe that the Republican base is at this point. And I, I think in, in terms of, you know, people that move from Obama to Trump, a lot of it was because of, they didn't feel like the Democratic Party, which they might've grown up with, as you noted, as like the working class party, they didn't feel like it, you know, Clinton or Obama represented them like that anymore. And, and Trump spoke to them in a way that Republicans traditionally hadn't. Uh, it, it is fascinating um, to see how Republicans are going to build off that and Democrats to, to staunch that really bleeding uh, and try to get some of those working class voters back. Yeah. I mean, we talked about just like the best things that Trump brought to our sort of system was, you know, one, we had an opportunity to stop just doing exactly this, like what you were saying, right? Whether it was Bush or Clinton, like in, in many ways, these are kind of two flavors of the exact same, uh, th uh, you know, scoop of ice cream. And we want, uh, that's a terrible metaphor, but you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's the, the same thing. And he really was just like, no, I'm not gonna, like we had these agreements before and everyone's saying that you can't touch them. You can't touch them. Like, fuck that. I don't care. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to take us out of that like tomorrow. And, and there was, you know, if, if I, I would be lying, if I 
wasn't hopeful that, hey, maybe some of our like interventionist style foreign policy is going to change under the Trump administration, right? There were certain things that, that like you said, like the, the spectrum kind of was coming around on the other side. And I was like, hey, maybe there, there, unfortunately, it was just like too much of the other noise to really take anything good from it. But I think, I think you're right in that those traditional, like it, it just woke people up. So those traditional, I just vote blue because that's, that's what I do. And now you have to actually like understand like, well, what are these policies actually doing for me? Are they doing anything for me? And what do I stand for in the future? And it's, as Brendan was saying, and you were saying earlier too, if we can get away from some of the noise and unfortunately it's the policy stuff that's really boring. The noise is what gets people riled up. (laughs) Exactly. You have to separate the signal from the noise, uh, but the media doesn't allow you to do that uh, because, you know, the, the media wants to focus on identity politics. They want to focus on, you know, kind of like celebrityism and like we're watching E! Entertainment or something when in fact we should be, we should be focusing on what's going on with our US troops overseas. Um, you know, it was really interesting to me when Trump brought troops out of Syria in 2018. I'm sure you guys remember that. And I saw CNN oppose it, um, which, which completely surprised me because you would think that CNN would be all for, you know, getting troops out of the Middle East, bringing them home. But because Trump did it, it was the worst thing, you know, a U.S. president could do. We're, we're abandoning our allies. And, and I get that point of view because, you know, the Kurds, the Kurds did a lot of work there to oppose ISIS and we should support them. But I don't believe in forever wars. I don't believe that we should have our troops in the Middle East forever. Um, we've spent trillions and trillions of dollars in the Middle East. We could have rebuilt this country three times over. Look at our airports. You go to an airport these days, they're crumbling, the infrastructure in this country. We haven't passed an infrastructure bill in how many years? So that whole establishment thinking is just obsolete, but the mainstream media is in bed with the establishment. So you'll never hear about that unless if you actually go to alternate sources of news, uh, like podcasts like this, or you know, just um, even, even left-wing news like Daily Beast or, or right-wing news, uh, Breitbart. You need to be able to fill yourself with all different perspectives so you really know what's going on. Yeah, I think we're going to clip that part where you said, like, like podcasts like this. <laughs> That's where you can get your good news. <laughs> That'll be our new promo. <laughs> all right. I want to talk about uh, something else. So HR1, which uh, Ricky and I talked about previously, is a bill that just passed the Senate, uh, the, the House last week. Uh, and Trump touched on it in his speech. He said, uh, quote, this monster must be stopped. It cannot be allowed to pass. Uh, Mike Pence, former vice president, came out with an article this past week uh, really against it. We've heard all sorts of outcry on the right about it. Uh, curious your thoughts on, on the bill in general. All right. First thing, um, I've, I've actually been reading some of the facts behind H.R. 1 just to prepare for this interview uh, for the podcast. So it wants to ban state voter ID laws by forcing states to allow individuals to vote without an ID and merely signing a statement in which they claim they are who they say they are. Um, I couldn't be more against that. I think that every state should have their own sovereignty and how they conduct their elections. Um, you know, that's constitutional. That's how we've done it for over a century. Um, the nationalization of elections, I don't think is a good idea whatsoever. And I understand why the, the Democrats are doing it. They're smart. They're very, very shrewd and intelligent politicians because they know that they have the majority in Congress and the presidency. So now is the time to make bold change. 
And this will create the most change than any other bill they've considered to this point, because the nationalization of elections by allowing absentee ballots and mail-in voting, um, notwithstanding a pandemic, would, would favor the Democrats. I mean, we all know that after this past election. So yes, there, there are good arguments that it would increase the turnout, um, but I do believe in election security. I do believe that we need to be able to ensure people are who they say they are when they're voting. I don't think that's a bad thing. All right. So I think you know that we agree on the sense that states should be in charge of their own elections. I'm, I'm also very much like that states should have control over what happens in their state, that I don't think it should be nationalized. Uh, but what do you say to states, say Georgia or Arizona or North Carolina or wherever, that seem to be cracking down on voting rights in much the same way that states did under Jim Crow, where uh, in, you can call it there, we always have new taglines for it, whether it was, you know, the, the poll tax or the, the tests that we used to give it at, um, at voting booths. And, and now, you know, if you're a felon, you have to, you owe court fees before, before you can vote again, or you have to show voter ID. So if states dominated largely by Republican legislatures seem to be enacting laws to restrict voting rights particularly for black and brown people, minority voters, why shouldn't Congress step up and make a national voting laws like HR1 to ensure that everyone has equal access to the ballot? Well, if that was the case, then I would agree with you that Congress should step up, but I don't think that's the case at all. I don't think, um, I don't think they're doing that to you know, um, delegitimize any race or anything like that. I think it's more about voter integrity. I think um, you can't compare Joe, Jim Crow, Eric, um, uh, you know, uh, some of these laws that were passed back in the 60s and 70s um, to voter ID. I just don't think that's a good comparison. I think that you have to look at what's going on right now. Um, mail-in balloting is a new development, um, especially unsolicited mail-in balloting. And there's obviously, you know, potential fraud. Uh, in the past election, we did not see enough evidence of that fraud. However, the issues came down to the state legislators not having sovereignty over their elections. Uh, that's what a lot of these lawsuits were actually over. Um, but obviously the, the news media didn't report that, they just focused on the fraud. But if you actually look at these lawsuits, it was focused on the state Supreme Court um, kind of issuing these, these orders that the states could allow um, mail-in balloting three days after the election had already ended. Uh, that's what Mike Pence was talking about in his article actually. So. I don't think you can compare that to Jim Crow um, legislation. I think that uh, voter ID is um, a good thing for states. And if the states want to do that, that's it. That's within their sovereignty to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think on the face, you know, there there's not a ton to argue with there. I think my problem is so, you know, obviously a lot of these things are coming up because of, you know, the decision with Shelby versus Holder. I think it was 2012 or, or 13, essentially, that remove the part of the uh, the Voting Rights Act that required states to get approval from the federal government if they wanted to impose another layer of sort of restriction, because we know, as, as Brennan was mentioning, majority of historical restrictions were targeted at certain populations, and we kind of just know how those things turn out. I don't think that anybody... Um, I, I, I really I really don't think that anybody is looking for or, or wants fraud in the election system, whether it's a Democrat or, or a Republican. Um, 
I think the challenge here is that in the United States, we've always had more of an issue with voter participation than we have with had with election fraud. And so when we talk about um, making, you know, making new rules that make it harder for certain people to vote because we are worried about this thing that we really haven't seen at scale anywhere, like impact the U.S. elections, like it is, it's, you know, Republicans are always the ones that are saying we have too many regulations getting in the way of things like this. For me, this should be one of those things that we can kind of agree on that, like they're, you know, just that, like the idea of like, all right, they're going to be this one guy who's going to be running around trying to sign 50 or, you know, 500 or a thousand or 10,000 ballots that he can send in that are going to be fraudulent. It seems, it seems difficult and far-fetched. And personally, I mean, I don't understand why we can file our taxes online. We can't figure out how to like vote in a secure way that's like tied to a social security number or something. Obviously that's not, it's not as simple as that, but there should be ways that we can all agree to safely expand the voting process. And we, we do know, unfortunately, that like there were, there were things that were blatant uh, ways to discriminate, discriminate against certain populations but there are ways that have been slightly more insidious. And I'm not even suggesting that these are necessarily uh, Republican policies. They have been lately, but in general, like restrictive ID laws, you know, in some states you used to be able to vote with a gun permit and not a student ID, things like that, that we know have leanings towards certain populations and then where these things are cropping up, right? It's cropping up in Georgia now following you know, a quote unquote blue wave there. It's happening in Arizona when that state flipped blue, right, for the federal election. So so we're, I think something that Republicans will have to contend with is again, like, are they going to fight on policies or or are they really going to say, you know, the, we're losing the identity politics in the media enough that rather than try and convince populations that that have traditionally voted blue and seem ready to do that again we're we'd rather like figure out how to you know scratch a few uh a few people off of the the voter roll well let me ask you this do you think that your um your federal tax dollars should be going towards campaigns at the federal level because that's what hr1 has in in the bill so i i mean i think i would much rather have my tax dollars go to, to federal elections and take a lot of the other outside of money out of politics, I would be very happy with that. I know it's not, a, it's, it doesn't work like that. I'm not necessarily saying that I'm fully, I don't actually know enough about HR1 to say that I, I fully support it, but just the, the general idea that I, what, what it's a reaction to state level policies that are potentially going to make things more challenging for people to vote is, is what I view it as. Yeah, Vince, I'd be curious along the money lines because that's one of the that uh, one of the provisions of the bill that Republicans have have really been against is that um, for I think it's like a six to one uh, there's like a campaign financing provision that will do like a six to one federal match for small dollar donations raised by congressional candidates. I um, mean that's what you were referencing, I believe, earlier, and a lot of Republicans are saying now we're just taking federal federal money and giving them to uh, 
to fund people's campaigns. Uh, but I'd be curious your thoughts about like big money in politics. And this comes out of you know, Citizens United, I think 2010 decision um, to allow this, what do you want to call it? Big money or dark money and treats corporations as people and has seen an explosion of, of money uh, in in all real and really all elections, particularly in federal elections over, over the last decade. And funnily enough, it largely used to be towards Republican candidates that were financed by big dollar donations. As you referenced a little bit earlier, times have changed and now Democratic campaigns, particularly someone like President Biden's campaign, uh, was largely funded by you know, billionaires in Wall Street and Silicon Valley. So it's not necessarily a, a partisan issue these days. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious your take on that and whether you think, uh, whether it's through a law or potentially a congressional amendment, uh, constitutional amendment, sorry, uh, that should we be trying to take that like big money out of politics? Well, I think there's a good populist argument to say that you should, um, you know, because these corporations are so powerful. You look at the big tech oligarchs, they run the country in many aspects. They're more powerful than the federal, federal government. Um, and look what they just did in this last election. Uh, they were able to stop the president of the United States from communicating to his followers on social media. Yeah, obviously, they're, they may have good reason for that, but it just shows you the power that they have. Right. Um, so when it comes to big money in elections, I think that we should talk about that. Um, the Supreme Court, as you noted, did uh, make its ruling in Citizens United that they should be considered as um, people. Um, I think that does make sense. Um, everyone that I know that runs corporations are people uh, right. for the most part. <laughs> so, for the most part? <laughs> who, who are the people you know running corporations that aren't people? <laughs> well, Mitt Romney said, going on. <laughs> yeah, Mitt Romney said that, uh, you know, back when he was running for president, you know, yeah. Mitt, uh, um, Corporations are people too. Uh, that, that got him in a lot of trouble though. So I, I think it's an interesting uh, topic though. And overall, they should have their right to fund uh, campaigns. But I think it's a certainly fair uh, statement to say that there should be limits. Yeah. All right. That, more on that. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that's a, maybe a good, a good spot to end. Uh, Vince, is there anything that you wanted to touch on that we didn't get to? Um. Well, yeah, let's let's talk about, about the Democratic Party a little bit and kind of where they're going to go from here. Um, oh, flip it. Flip it yeah, on. Let's flip it. Um, <laughs> you know, do you see the Pelosi's and the Schumer's uh, maintaining power? Do you see someone like an AOC, um, one of the one of these progressive firebrands kind of uh, primarying some of these more corporate Democrats? And, you know, fighting for issues that are important to voters, like $15 an hour minimum wage, uh, like raising the corporate tax rate, which I disagree with, but a lot of people uh, would support to raise money for maybe childcare, something that's important for the people. So where do you think the Democratic Party uh, really lies in there? Golly, I hope so. I mean, really, the biggest thing for the last four years is that like Trump has been this boogeyman that has whatever united the party, but you're already seeing it right like in what they're trying to pass with the coronavirus relief bill there's a, there's a lot that people are not agreeing on. And I, and I, and I hope so and honestly like my biggest issue of the last, you know, 15 or so years that I've actually been more engaged with politics has been that we're, we're stuck in this two party system that just doesn't offer people a choice. And so on both the left and the right, like I'm hoping that that a lot of these, I mean, whether whether it is AOC, she's a very important figure right now for the for the progressive movement. Um, I, I'm, I don't 
you know, I don't, I, I wouldn't say that I love everything that she's proposing, but I do, I do like a lot of the way that she goes about things in terms of um, getting grassroots support in, you know, much the way you could say that, that, that Trump did um, and that sort of Bernie did as well um, in 2016, that, that, that will start to wake people up because I, I just don't think that a lot of people who are professed Democrats really know what their party is doing on a day-to-day policy kind of agenda type thing. Like ask somebody what our kind of foreign policy goals are as, as the democratic party. And like, you, yeah, I mean, you'd be hard pressed to find anybody who has any clue, I think. No, you're exactly right. And the democratic establishment took the candidacy away from Bernie Sanders, not only in 16, but also in 20. Um, so Bernie Sanders voters should be completely upset with that wing of the party and they should be fighting against it. But one thing about the Democrats is they are very united. Um, when they find an opposition like Trump, they will always unite. So I think that'll be interesting moving forward, though, because they couldn't be more different. Uh, only in America would Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden be in the same party. <laughs> True. Right. I mean, it speaks, as Ricky alluded to, it speaks for the need for potentially splintering on, on both sides. Uh, but I do think, Vince, one of the things that you brought up and definitely one of the legacies of the past four years with both the Trump campaigns and the Sanders campaigns is that there are a lot of voters, perhaps more than ever before, that are up for grabs. And it, and it feels like that if you got the right candidate, you can get a really diverse uh, cross-section of voters, whether it's uh, you know, class-wise or you know, race-wise or gender-wise. And I think that'll be really fascinating going forward. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll see what happens, but they're going to have to get in control of the DNC because the DNC has so much power. Um, you know, it just really blew my mind how they just stole it from Bernie Sanders. I thought that was just horrible. Um, he, he clearly had the path to the nomination until South Carolina happened. And then they, they all just got together and supported Biden. So, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was nuts. Something that I almost assumed was going to happen in the Republican primary that like, you know, six or seven of them after Iowa would drop out and say, we're, we're supporting so-and-so, but um, yeah, it's, it is, it, it was not, not surprising at all to see exactly what you would have expected. Actually. I did not expect to have Vince on and hear him make a strong case for Bernie Sanders. (laughs) (laughs) I just got to highlight the differences in the parties and the wedge between, you know, the populace and the uh, corporatists. It's just, it's striking. Absolutely. All right, Vince, we really appreciate you taking the time um, to come on. This was a lot of fun and hopefully we can do it again uh, in the future. Absolutely. Thanks for having me guys. Yeah, definitely. Appreciate it. Thanks guys. I'll see you soon. Cameraman rolls a dice, working man pays a bill. It's still fat and easy up on Banker's Hill. Up on Banker's Hill, the party's going strong. Down here below, we're shackled and drawn. So it was great to have um, to have Vince join us tonight. I think um, you know I'm I'm interested to hear your reflections. One of the things that that struck me, and I guess I shouldn't be too surprised about. Um, was, uh, you know, were the parallels that he kept drawing between um, sort of the the populist movement um, from a policy standpoint that that Trump was, you know, at times putting forth um, and, and how it it should have or uh, was similar to um, a lot of the policies that Bernie Sanders was was advocating. 
um, just kind of feeling like that spectrum was, you know, wrapping around itself a little bit. Yeah, it was really interesting where maybe when I had Vince on or invited Vince on, I thought it was going to be more of you and him uh, going back at it a little bit and being more combative. And there was that element, but it actually seemed like you and, and him actually agreed on more things. And it was me who was the, the two on one, which is really interesting to just kind of think that we call the, like we call ourselves center right and center left. Maybe I, I'm more centrist and in whether you want to call it traditional in the Bush, Obama, Biden, Clinton lane, than people like you and Vince, who while on maybe social issues, you are on different ends of the spectrum on economic issues, you guys are actually probably far more similar than I am. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, and it, I, I feel like a, a little bit of a broken record, but for me, that was like, that was just, there was a ton of hope there. Um, that we from the Trump presidency that like, here's an opportunity to just not do more of the same and to get people paying attention to 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 politics and really um, to to look at these things critically from a, a different perspective, not from like, a you know, I fall in this camp, so I necessarily have to believe this. Here's a guy who's breaking all the camps. Unfortunately, he ended up kind of doing, you know, whatever he did. And I'm also sick of the fact that I, I always, I can't not bring him up. Um, and it's, it's just like, you know, what, what is that saying? He lives rent-free inside my head or something. Yeah. Well, he's done that to, you know, the millions of Americans and certainly all the major media outlets for five years now. Right. And continues to, unfortunately, cannot. Evade. Seems like you're coming around on him though. This is, I didn't anticipate this. No, no. I mean, <laughs> it is, it's, it's like from the, at the beginning, that's what I, that's what I was clinging to. Um, and then of course he, he went on to do all of the things that he did and, and uh, you know, he lo- lost, lost me uh, probably at day two of his administration or something. But um, I mean, that, that is interesting or, you know, the conversation with, with Vince was, was interesting for, for sort of for that piece, but also, you know, a lot of the things that us, progressives complain about with the system the way that it is are things that he also finds problematic with the system right it's it's railing against like the quote-unquote establishment and there's that righteous anger on both the right and the left against whatever you want to call like the establishment Uh, yeah it was it was interesting i will say like i think you mentioned the term hopeful where it's fun for just on a, on a personal level, when we started this, that we wanted to have some of these conversations and for Vince to come on and believe different things than both you and I politically, but also wanted to have these conversations and engage with people of different viewpoints and to try to move us forward. And while there are times during that interview and every episode where we kind of throw our hands up and be like, man, this, the scope of these, the issues that our country is facing seems daunting and insurmountable. Um, it's fun to have people on, whether it's Vince or Ollie previously, that are all willing to engage in, in this type of these type of conversations and this type of work. Yeah. And it, uh, it feels like it goes to show, you know, if you're not just like throwing together 800, 1200 page uh, bills or something, you know, there is a lot that people can actually agree on or should be able to agree on. All right. It's a, it's a nice, hopeful tone to end it. Yeah. We'll call it there. All right. I will see you soon. Sounds good. See you, buddy.
We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised but what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten The values sometimes being wrong Some mornings you away The morning let your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give for the Hope I used to find in a, a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share like American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell Full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days we'll leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. Folks of different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.